You find our scripture reading for this morning uh, in your bulletin. If you have a Bible with you, we're in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. I want to start us off this morning with a little quiz. Um, I'm going to give you a list of ingredients, and I want to know if you can tell me what these ingredients when put together create, all right? And librarians, you cannot play unless no one else gets this first. (laughs) All right, you ready? Fluxweed. She knows already. Knotgrass. Lacewing flies. And leeches. All right, that's part one. Part two. Horn of bicorn. Lacewing fly, singular. Boom slaying skin and a piece of another person. Usually their hair, okay? Usually, usually their hair. Does anybody know what this is? I heard someone say, is that what you're going to say? Yeah, polyjuice. Polyjuice. <laughs> polyjuice potion. Nobody else knows what that is? You, know, you all need to read Harry Potter. You need to come and read Harry Potter. <laughs> All right, poly, poly, this is not what John Lucas uses to treat plantar fasciitis. All right, uh, this, is, this, is, this is polyjuice potion. All right, and in the Harry Potter books, what this is used for is if you take a piece of another, take the hair of another person and you mix it in with this and ingest it, you transform into the appearance, at least, of this other person. All right, you with me? It brings about a transformation. So if I wanted to turn into Jim O'Donnell for the day, I'd get a piece of his hair, put it in this, mix it up, and drink it, and I would be Jim O'Donnell for the day. Now, I'm guessing most of you don't want to do that. You probably don't want to become like uh, another person this morning. But I would, I would wager the bet that we all long for transformation. And we, we wish that it was that easy that we could just mix something up and drink it and we would be changed because we, want, we long to be smarter, uh, more athletic, more successful, less awkward. There, there are things about ourselves and about our life situations that we would love to change. Uh, last week as we started this series on sanctification, we saw that God Himself is committed to bringing about transformation in the lives of His children. That God is committed to changing us into the very likeness of Jesus Jesus Christ. That God is committed to taking believers and making them holy. He's committed to taking believers and making them beautiful. Um, We saw that the Father commands this, commands our holiness. The Son died so that we would be holy. The Spirit works holiness within us. God uses even the trials of our lives to make us holy and that we are destined for a place where we will be fully holy and fully beautiful. And all that involves transformation because by nature we're not holy. That's not who we are. So what I want us to start thinking about this morning is, well, how does this transformation take place? How does God change me from what I am and begin to conform me to the image of Jesus. So let's read together Romans chapter 12. Actually, I'll read, you follow along. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we do long for this transformation in our lives. Uh, We pray that you would show us how you work that in us. Help us to begin to see what role we play in that. Uh, But Father, I I guess I pray most of all that you really give us that desire. uh, That desire to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. So we're we're trying to answer this question, how does this transformation in our lives take place? I want to start here with what I'm going to call the root of transformation. The root of transformation. Uh, and I want to start with a story about Martin Luther. You know, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so you've got to, you've got to bear with me for at least one uh, Martin Luther story. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in Germany. And in 1505, he was, he was around 21 years old, he entered a monastery and he spent his days praying, fasting, singing, meditating. He was, he was a professional Christian. Uh, things went pretty well for Luther going through the motions of this until one day he found out he had been chosen to be a priest and he had to say his first mass. And at that time, Luther became horrified at the thought of doing this because he was horrified at the thought of the holiness of God. And so he began this lifelong quest trying to figure out how he as a sinner could possibly have peace with a holy God. The church of his day was teaching him that he needed to do good works to find peace with God. But even though he did that or felt like he was doing that, even though he continually confessed his sins and went through all of the religious motions, he did everything they were telling him to do, he couldn't find peace with God. Finally, he was selected to be basically a, a seminary professor and he had to teach the Bible to other people. And he thought, what, what in the world? How can I, somebody who has no peace with God, teach other people about how they can have a relationship with God and what it means to follow Him? But it's what he was called to do, and so he began to do it. He taught through the Psalms, he taught through Galatians, and then he began to teach through the book of Romans. And it's as he got into chapter 1 of Romans in verse 17 that things changed for Luther. It was the the verse that God used to transform his life. Verse 117 of the book of Romans, For in it, it being the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther, the lights came on for Luther, and he finally understood that the righteousness he needed to have peace with God didn't come from inside of him. It actually came from outside of him. He realized that the righteousness he needed came from God. And it was made known in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That right standing with God came through faith in what Christ had done, not through faith in what Luther himself could do. And this is what he said. I felt as if I had been born again. The gates had been opened and I had entered paradise itself. And Luther, for the rest of his life, fought for the idea that salvation is by faith in what Christ has done and not through our works, religious 
or otherwise. And that was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, just kind of a, a, a side here. Some of you may have noticed that NPR tweeted Luther's 95 theses this week, all 95 of them. And other people with NPR thought their account had been hacked because they couldn't believe they were tweeting Martin Luther's stuff. Anyway, um, Luther, see, Luther thought that if he transformed himself, that, that that would bring about salvation. That if he could transform himself, that would bring about peace with God. But then one day he realized that he had that order backwards. It wasn't that personal transformation leads to salvation. It's the other way around. Salvation and having peace with God comes first through faith in Jesus. And that's what actually leads to personal transformation. Paul says here in the the text we're looking at, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be transformed. And that sounds like, oh, that's something I need to go do. But what does he say before that? He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Or as the New International Version translates it, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. In light of the way that God has been merciful to you. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 in the book of Romans are kind of a hinge in the book of Romans. Uh, They're a hinge between the indicatives, what God has done, and the imperatives, what God calls us to do in light of what God has done. And what God has done has got to come first. It lays the foundation. It's got to lay the foundation for, for our lives as well. If you were to go back this afternoon, we're just kind of jumping in in, in Romans here this morning, but if you were to, back, to go back this afternoon and read the first 11 chapters of Romans, you would find in the first 11 chapters of Romans 315 verses. And if you were to write down all the verses in the first 11 chapters of Romans telling you to do something, you would write down seven verses. Seven verses out of 315 telling you to actually do something. In other words, Paul spends 98% of the first 11 chapters of Romans talking about what God has done for us in terms of salvation. And only then, only then after he has laid that foundation does he pivot in chapter 12 and begin to tell us and instruct us how we ought to live in light of that. Why? What does he, what does he take all this time? Can't he just get to telling us what we need to do? Why does he do that? It's because the gospel is not about what I do. The gospel is not about what I do. It's about what God has done for me in Christ. The gospel is not about what I do. It's about what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation. That's the soil you and I have to be rooted in if transformation is going to take place in our lives. The gospel is that soil. Otherwise, we'll just fall back into self-salvation projects where either we become self-righteous or we burn out. But there won't be real transformation in our lives. Uh, my front yard, if you've been to our house, my front yard is a barren landscape. Now, I'm not proud of this, but that's what it is. And it, it's covered in dirt and leaves and a little bit of pine straw and an occasional 
blade of grass and it needs topsoil and it needs fertilizer and it needs it needs a lot of things that I'm not willing to give it right now. So so a, a couple of years ago though I made an honest effort and I went and bought some loads of topsoil and I spread them across part of my front yard kind of like let's see if I can do a section of this and I got some fescue seed and I fertilized it and I watered it and it came up and it was beautiful and about the time this was all taking place my brother-in-law showed up at my house who has a horticulture degree and he looked at what I had done and he said you know you really should have tilled that topsoil you bought down into the dirt that was already there because what's going to happen is that grass is going to grow to the bottom of the tops. The root is going to go to the bottom of that topsoil, but it's not going to get into the dirt that's already there. And so it's going to have a very shallow root system. And when it gets hot next summer, it's all going to die. And I said, thank you for your encouragement. You can leave now. Um, but but he, was, he was right. He was right. There, there was not the right mix of soil for that grass to take root in. So it, it couldn't flourish. You and I will not grow as believers in Jesus Christ unless we are rooted in the soil of God's grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We have to be rooted in the gospel. The gospel that says to us we are born again by God's grace. The gospel that says to us we are justified, we are made right with God by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel that says we are adopted into God's family by grace. The gospel that says we are forgiven by God's grace. The gospel that says we are set apart to God by God's grace. The gospel that says we are given the Holy Spirit by God's grace. The gospel that tells us that every day, even as we do pursue sanctification, even as we do put forth effort in the Christian life to follow Jesus We do it in absolute dependence on God's grace to us. Looking back to Christ and resting in what He has done for us to accomplish our salvation and looking to Christ to make us holy now so that we can walk with Him in a way that's pleasing to Him. You don't transform yourself to earn God's mercy. Instead, out of gratitude and thanksgiving to God, for His mercy, we pursue transformation. Um, I read an article this week about the original Spider-Man comic book, and the, the writer said this. He said, The crucial point in the original episode was that Peter Parker's initial burst of unwanted arrogance on receiving his spider powers led to the death of his beloved Uncle Ben. I think that he was proud, and he thought he could handle this, and it wound up killing his uncle, getting his uncle killed. He says, the notion of a moral lapse, his momentary hubris, that could never really be atoned for, gave the comic book its air of perpetual dissatisfaction. Becoming Spider-Man was a perpetual reminder to the hero of his own shortcomings, a kind of penance. There was always the possibility that he would fail again, and so he was condemned to a vigilant monitoring of his own reactions and impulses. In such a situation, an unqualified sense of triumph was by definition impossible. Some of us are stuck where Spider-Man lives. We're stuck where Martin Luther once lived. 
we're, we're trying to find some way to do penance for our sins and our shortcomings. We're trying to transform ourselves through our own efforts. And the Apostle Paul, if he was here today, I think he would say, just stop. Let me stop you there. And, and let me suggest that you go and read my epistle to the Romans. And what you'll find out as you read that is that you're actually much worse off than you think you are. That your situation is so bad that you can't do anything about it. But God has done something in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you need to know about that. Because what He has done is the key to your transformation. Uh, Some of us are treading water. You feel like you're losing the sin. You feel like you're, you're getting beat up and you're beating yourself up about it. And the place you have to run back to, first of all, is to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. When we sin, we don't fall out of grace. We fall back in to God's grace. That's, that's the root of transformation in our lives. Now secondly, I want to talk about the location of transformation. The location of transformation. Paul says here to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament, believers would bring animal sacrifices to God uh, in order to show that blood had to be shed to take away sin, uh, in order to thank God for His goodness, in order to express their devotion to God. Now, living on this side of the cross, Jesus has come, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, uh, His blood has been shed, so no further animal sacrifices are needed. The the sacrifice that they were all pointing to anyway, it's been made. And so that's why we don't need those any longer. But there's still a sense in which we bring a sacrifice to God. Paul says to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, doesn't that mean simply that he wants us to devote our entire lives to God? That we are to turn from our obsession with ourself and our narcissism and our self-worship and following our own desires and give up on that and instead commit ourselves to following the desires of God. Yeah, I, I do think that's what he's getting at. But it's interesting, isn't it, that he uses the word bodies. He uses the word bodies. Because, you know, we do have a body and a soul, but our body is not like this unnecessary add-on that we're just going to have for a little while. In heaven, we're going to have resurrected bodies. Our, our bodies are part of who we are. And so Paul says the, the location where you're transformed is actually in your bodies. And so we devote how we think and how we speak to God. Uh, we, we, we devote the way we use our hands and our feet and our eyes and our lips all of our bodies, we devote that to God's service. All of me is meant to be transformed and made holy. I present my entire self as a living sacrifice. Uh, The comedian Russell Brand has just written a book called Recovery, uh, and it's about his struggle with addiction. And a reviewer in the New York Times was writing about this and said this, Mr. Brand's thinking about addiction goes something like this. At the root of all addiction is narcissism, a constant thrumming attention to self. 
If you are self-absorbed, you are suffering. And if you suffer, you seek ways to stop it through drugs, alcohol, sex, maybe Facebook lives. Then he, he quotes Russell Brand. He says, We are trying to solve inner problems externally. Whatever it is in our lives that is missing, he said. Eckhart Tolle said it perfectly. Addiction starts with pain and ends with pain. And then the writer says, here's the point. Drugs, booze, sex. It's not the particular addiction that matters as much as the fact that your life is out of control because of it. But think about that statement. The root, the root of addiction is narcissism. It's just this focus on ourselves. And then think about what the Apostle Paul says here. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Paul is calling us as those saved by grace to a life of transformation. And that transformation is going to involve me losing my obsession with myself and how I feel about everything. It means I quit bowing down to my desires as if my desires are the supreme thing in the universe and bow down to God. And that's not only right, that's actually good for you. Because it's only in the worship of God, it's only in worshiping the one that we are made to worship that you and I are actually freed from our addictions to ourself. And we begin to be made beautiful. And the, the, the Bible says we actually become like what we worship. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to learn to worship Jesus with all of yourself, with all of your body. So the, the root of transformation is God's grace to us. The scope of transformation, the location of transformation is in our very bodies. Let me talk a minute about the process. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite things about Christmas was that my mom would break out the the Christmas uh, cookie cutters. And we would make cookies every Christmas. And we had cookie cutters that were shaped like Christmas trees and snowmen and Santa Claus and reindeers. And we would make sugar cookies. And I would get to cut all of those cookies. And you you know, know how a cookie cutter works, right? You put it in the dough and the cookie comes out in the shape of the mold of the cookie cutter that you used. Um, every day, we're, we're, the world around us is trying to cookie cutter us. It's trying to shape us into its mold. Uh, every day, we're being shaped by the stories that we hear. Uh, the stories that we hear from our friends, uh, the stories in our, in, uh, in our social media feeds, the, the stories that we take in on Netflix. Uh, every day, we're shaped about stories about what the good life really is. And we're told, hey, this is, this is what a good life is. This is what a good life is. One of the ways uh, American culture has been shaped, just as an example, over the last few years is in the area of, of sexuality. And we've around, arrived at a point in our culture, we've been molded to the point where the world around us says and tries to get us to agree that the things that you do sexually with your body with your own body are up to you and as long as you don't hurt anybody else 
as long as you are true to yourself, you can do whatever you want to do. It's a private matter. It's nobody's business but your own. Now, there's a lot that has gone into getting us to that point in our culture. But one of the things that that always sticks in my mind when I think about this is there an old Seinfeld episode, and I think there may have, this line may have happened in numerous episodes, where Jerry and George are talking about somebody who's a homosexual, and they say, and they would always say this, not that there's anything wrong with that. Immediately after they said it, they would say, but not that there's anything wrong with that. And it was kind of this awkward point in American culture where homosexuality was beginning to be accepted, but the general population as a whole still thought there was something wrong with that. And so Jerry and George were kind of at this, not that there's anything wrong with that. And we've kind of had a drip of stuff like that in media over the last few years. So that now it's totally and completely acceptable to most people. Uh, Paul is saying, you have to, to watch out for that. Don't be conformed to, to, to the thinking of the world. Don't allow what the world is saying to mold you into how it thinks about sexuality and money and God and work and all of these things. Don't be shaped by the cookie cutters of the world. Instead, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Now, how are our minds transformed? They're transformed by bringing them into this mold. By bringing them under the mold of Scripture The Word of God, as it were, is the polyjuice potion that transforms the way we think. It transforms our mind. I think if the word woke had been in vogue in Paul's days, woke kind of meaning in our context to be socially aware of something that you haven't been aware of before you get get woke to it. I think if it had been in vogue in Paul's day, he would have said, you you need to be woke to the reality of, of the way things really are. That, that what you're hearing around you is not the truth. You're, you're kind of in the matrix, guys, and you've got to come out of the matrix. You've got to take the red pill. Quit allowing your thinking to be conformed to popular opinion and to what BuzzFeed is telling you and what Fox News is telling you and what CNN is telling you and what the lady down the street is telling you. And be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Our minds are shaped... Our bodies are transformed. We are transformed as our thinking is renewed by scriptures. And that's why this is so important. Because we come willingly and we we put ourselves under the preaching of the word. It's why you gathering together in small groups. It's why you picking up the Bible and reading it yourself. Or reading it with your spouse. or, Or whatever works for you. Getting underneath the teaching of the Bible is so important. So that you and I can learn to think biblically about life. So that you and I can can hear this message about Jesus and the gospel over and over again. And be shaped by his love and his mercy to us. Let me give you just a couple of of thoughts here about how this can transform you. We talked about sex a minute ago. The coming underneath the teaching of scriptures will transform how you think about sex you'll discover that it's not simply a private matter for you to enjoy however you want to do. But it's actually the relational glue that's meant to hold together a husband and a wife. It's meant to be expressed 
within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And that those marriages actually provide the necessary context for families to thrive and children to thrive and communities to thrive. So that when we use sex outside of marriage, we're actually tearing down the culture as a whole. It's not just a private matter. Uh, Let me read Tim Keller paraphrasing Wendell Berry, which if you guys know me, that's like the greatest thing ever. It's like my two favorite authors coming together. He said this, When people use sex for individual recreation, it weakens the entire body politic's ability to live for others. You learn to commodify people and think of them as a means to satisfy your own passing pleasure. It turns out that sex is not just your business, it's everybody's business. I was reading this quote with some guys this week and somebody told me this story, an illustration they had heard that that sex is like uh, the fire in your fireplace in the living room, that when you keep the fire in the fireplace, it's great. When it gets outside the fireplace, it burns down the whole house. And that's what's happening in our culture. We're, we're burning down the whole house. Uh, a second way the gospel transforms how we think. It transforms how we think about poverty. Um, as you get the gospel into you, you will, you, will stop to, you will stop looking at poor people as simply helpless, oppressed victims who need your expertise. But on the other hand, neither will you look at them as failures who have simply themselves to blame for their situations. Instead, you'll look at them with humility. Because you know what it is like to be spiritually bankrupt. And so you can understand material bankruptcy. You'll look at them with generosity because you didn't earn the grace that Jesus gave you. Jesus gave you grace freely. He didn't say, come pay for this. He said, I'm giving this to you. And you look at them with respect because they are people who bear the image of God. Uh, Being transformed by the Bible will transform the way you think about your life and your career is not something I do simply to find the best path to find self-fulfillment. But it's a way where I can actually serve God and serve the people around me. Transformation is rooted in the gospel. It takes in our entire bodies and lives And it takes place by the transformation, by the renewal of our minds, by the scriptures. Now, last thing, what's the effect? What's the effect? Paul says here that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or as NIV says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Now, what's Paul saying here? I don't think he's saying if you just obey God, then suddenly God will show up every day and tell you what to do and like tell you what major to take and what career path and what, what, you know, all that stuff, who to marry, that kind of thing. He's saying that as God uses, as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the way in which we think, we'll be able to discern better how we ought to live and what we ought to do in the various situations of life. We'll approve God's will, meaning we'll, we'll understand what God's will is better, and we'll begin to agree with God that that's good with the goal of actually putting that into practice. We, we develop a better understanding of how God wants us to live 
and we actually start to agree with them. Yeah, that's right, and that's good, and I want to live in that way. Uh, Susan's dad used to always say to me, I want to live long enough to see you get stupid. And, and what he meant by that was that when your kids are young, they think you hung the moon. They think you can do no wrong. You know, they think that everything is good and wonderful about you. And then very often they go through this stage of thinking their parents are the stupidest people in the world, right? That you don't know anything about anything. And what he was saying was, yeah, they idolize you now, but I want to see you when they don't idolize you anymore. When they don't think you're so smart and so wonderful. But, but here's the thing. We, we, we go to this stage, right? We all go to this stage where we trust our parents, we love our parents, and we go to these questions where we're like, I'm not so sure about them, I don't know how smart they are. But then, and, and I'm assuming like if you had good parents, not perfect parents, but decent parents, you kind of come back to the stage where you go, yeah, they're kind of right about a lot of stuff. And you actually begin to think kind of like they thought. And you begin to look at the world like they looked at the world. And, and you begin to make decisions because you've actually been shaped by the way they made decisions. As we get to know our Father in Heaven, who is perfect, over time, through the story of the Bible, there, there will be times when you think he's kind of crazy. Where you think, I know what you're saying to do here, God, but that makes absolutely no sense to me. But as you obey him, and as he continues to transform you, more and more we begin to see he was right all along. And he wanted what was good for me the entire time. And now I see it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would continue to transform us and we know that foundational to that is understanding your grace and mercy to us so I pray that we'd have a big understanding of how big your grace is and then Father in light of that in light of knowing that you want what is good for us I pray that we would be those who learn not to be conformed to the world but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can know what you would have us to do And so that we can approve that and be glad about that uh, and willingly seek to do it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.